Well, good morning, Clemson Presbyterian Church. It's good to see you again this morning, get to reacquaint myself with some faces that have become familiar this year, as well as meet a few new faces uh, for the first time this morning. Uh, A new title, I think it might be, yes, they got it up on the slide, excellent. The title for this morning's message is not the one on your bulletin, rather it is The Affection of Christ in the Heart of the Christian. And last week, Pastor Kirk did kick off this series on Ephesians, or Philippians. I almost had the wrong book. That would be really bad if I came. <laughs> Philippians. Uh, with, this, with this theme statement, that the gospel calls you to give up the life you dreamed to joyfully gain the life Christ died to give you. And I've enjoyed meditating on that theme as I've been looking through our passage this morning. And today, what I want us to see in our verses is that the life Christ died to give you is a life that He lives within you. A life that He lives, mind and heart, intellect and emotions, thinking and affections, and lives within us so that we have His mind and think more as He thinks, and as we'll focus on this morning, we have His heart so that we can feel as He feels. And as I say that, I can't help but think that if ever there were a generation that seemed more confused on the matter of how to feel or how to live with our feelings, has there ever been one more confused than our own? We seem to have two extreme positions that are presented to us as the only options for how to relate to the emotions in your life. On the one hand, there are those who say you should ignore your feelings. Facts don't care about your feelings. Be cool, calm, collected, use your mind. And then on the other hand, a different group of people, or sometimes the same person, will pivot to the very next thing and say, I I couldn't do that without betraying my feelings. So I I must live this way and be true to my feelings, to my authentic self and my my deepest desires. Uh, The one group has a, a view like stoicism, which sees feelings as problematic, as things that could sweep you away, that take your life off course. So in the ship of your life, you want to you cast feelings overboard. And the other group fit a modern school of moral philosophy called expressivism, which says your deepest feelings and desires are correlated to your identity. So the most important thing to do with your life is to remove all hindrances to the full expression of your feelings and desires. So don't throw them overboard. Make them your compass. And this morning we're going to see in Paul that he's neither a Stoic nor is he an expressivist. He has a a better way. He's a man in Christ. And every part of him, his mind and his will and his heart, are being renewed and transformed by every part of Christ. The mind of Christ, the will of Christ, and the heart of Christ, as Christ lives in him. And as you hear Paul's words, inspired by the Spirit this morning, what the the Lord has done in Paul's life, I want you to ask yourself, what is the Lord desiring to do in my life through the very same Jesus who lived in Paul? So turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Verses 7 to 11. We'll spend most of our time on verses 7 to 8 and just the last couple of minutes on verses 9 to 11. Hear the word of God. 
It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord remains forever. Let's go to him in prayer. Gracious God, I thank you for the privilege of being able to stand here today and to speak of the glory of your Son. And to do so not because I am good enough or have been a good enough this week or this morning, for I have not, but because you are gracious enough to all of us. And you would magnify your Son in our hearts and in our minds. And so we pray that you would open the eyes and the ears of our hearts to behold and to hear and to receive deep within us the things of Christ that you would plant within us today. We make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Three points as we move through our passage this morning. A great surprise for a Presbyterian sermon. But first is the far-reaching affection of Christ. And then we will look at the outside-inside affection of Christ. And then lastly, at the transforming prayer of the affection of Christ. So... Let's begin with the far-reaching affection of Christ. Paul says in verse 7, It is right for me to feel this way about you all. Now he says this having just in verses 3 to 6 said, I feel thankful to the Lord for you. And I feel joy when I pray for you. And I feel confident or sure about you that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And now he continues that thought and says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all. And he adds going even deeper, I hold you all in my heart. Not adventure that many of us would, would, would blush to say that to someone that was not a close, close family member or a longtime friend uh, to say to them and to say to them sincerely, I hold you all in my heart. But here is Paul born and raised a Jew, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, who had set his heart on being a great religious scholar, on being zealous for the well-being of his nation, who would have been very indifferent to or even disdainful of non-Jewish peoples and nations, what we hear in the Bible called the Gentiles. And he is writing to say to Gentile audience of people, a community in Philippi, I hold you in my heart. Why? He adds, because you all, you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. He's saying, listen, I'm, I'm in prison right now. And, and my life has been hard as an apostle, but you have, you have stood with me and you have supported me as partners in this ministry. And I thank you for that. But that's not the ultimate reason that I hold you in my heart. I don't hold you in my heart because you are partners with me in ministry. I hold you in my heart because you are partakers with me of grace. What he's saying is that we have a spiritual kinship 
We are partakers together of the grace of the Heavenly Father through His Son, our older brother, Jesus Christ, in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And that means that we have a bond with each other that is thicker than blood. That's why it's appropriate for him to say, I hold you in my heart. Um, Peter will say something similar, or use a similar kind of logic, when he's writing to husbands in 1 Peter 3. And he's saying, husbands, dwell with your wives with all gentleness. And as he says, explains why, he doesn't say, because she's your wife. He could have said that. You should regard her as, as close to you. She's your covenant partner in this life. She is your wife. He says, no, there's even a deeper relationship in a Christian marriage that would motivate you to treat her with such gentleness and respect. He says this, because she is an heir with you of the grace of life. She is your sister in Christ for eternity. You all were raised in different families. You've come together through a covenant of marriage, but there's something deeper now at work. You have a spiritual bond. You are heirs together of the grace of life, and that should be another reason why you would treat her so well. And Paul's saying the same thing about here, here about his relationship with these Gentile believers in Philippi. As different as they are from him, he's saying we have a deep bond we are fellow partakers of grace. About five years ago, there was a, a great news story that went around the world about a couple brothers in Hawaii. Uh, just gave it away. I've told this story five times, and I have never ruined it at the very beginning. So as a judge would say, strike that from the jury, the record. Two friends. They're just friends. That's all you know is that they're friends. They'd, they'd, they'd grown up together. They'd been friends since middle school, playing football together, these friends. And they both uh, had cloudy backgrounds. One had been orphaned and adopted. The other had been raised by his mother, never knew their father. And they went through life together uh, as friends, living blocks from each other, um, vacationing with their families together. Just a really good friendship. And at the age of 74 and 72, at the encouragement of their children who wanted to know more about their, their, their background and family line, independently they took DNA tests. Would you, would you guess what came out of the DNA tests? <laughs> they found out they were full blood brothers. And, and when this news broke, they, they threw a party to celebrate. It became a story that was picked up by CNN and USA Today, the Washington Post, Huffington Post. And in the interviews with Walter and Alan, they said, you know, it's, it's really great, it's really exciting, but it's also kind of sad. Because we've both gone through a lot of highs and lows in the last six decades of knowing each other. And while it was great to have a friend, it would have been all the better to have known we were going through that with a brother. Paul has nothing to lament. Because he sees the Philippian Gentile Christians for exactly who they are. Fellow partakers of the grace. Fellow partakers of grace and thus his siblings in the family of God. And so it's right for him to feel this way about them and to hold them in his heart. Now when the affection of Christ comes into the heart of a Christian, one of the ways that you know it 
is that you begin to have an affection and love for people who are more and more unlike you. You begin to feel a deep kinship with people from different backgrounds, different upbringings, different ethnicities, different education levels, different socioeconomic statuses, different native languages. But you have this curious feeling that you, as you have relationship with them and talk with them, have a meal with them, you realize that you feel closer to the fellow believer who is most unlike you than you feel to the unbeliever who is most like you. And it's the affection of Christ within you reaching far to the body of Christ in all this diversity. And it makes sense that the affection of Christ in us would be a far-reaching affection, doesn't it? After all, how far did the love of Christ, the affection of Christ, reach to us in Christ? From heaven to earth. From the eternal, unbegotten Son of God, through whom all things were made, to, to the creature made with space and space and time with a beginning. From the holy, pure one to sinners and those who are defiled. Paul says in Philippians in Ephesians 5:2, let us walk in love as Christ has loved us. Christ loved us with a far-reaching love. And when his affection comes to our hearts, it will be a far-reaching affection in the heart of a Christian. And we see that in the heart of Paul. Which brings us to our second point: the outside-in affection of Christ. The outside-inside affection of Christ in the Christian. Verse 8: For God is my witness. That's the language of oath, by the way. So he's not about to say something that's just a subjective feeling. He's about to say something that he says is absolutely true. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ. He yearns for them. That's the language of, of, a, of a lover and, and his beloved. Now, all desire ultimately traffics kind of one of, of two ways. You could take any emotion, any desire, and put it under one of these, these two directions. It's either des the desire for something present in our lives to be absent. So in our anger, we want to we push something or push someone away. In our fear, we want to avoid something as much as possible. In our, in, our, in our contempt, we see someone who is exercising influence, and we want to make sure that their influence doesn't influence us. Right? So the desire for something present to be absent or the contrary, for something absent to be present. So the emotion of admiration is to open ourselves up to someone's influence, that so their influence would maximally come into our lives. Courage, like fear, sees a threat, but instead of wanting to avoid it, it wants to move toward it head on and engage it. And yearning simply wants the other person to be present, as near, as close as possible, if possible, in an embrace. Now, Paul is in prison, probably 600 miles as the, as the crow flies from Philippi, if he's in Rome at this time. And he says he yearns for them. It's, 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 for those of you who are more scientifically minded, I think emotions work in our lives like magnetism. It's, it's an invisible, compelling pull either towards something or if you flip the poles around, if I remember sixth grade well enough, it, it, it will repel it. And Paul is feeling magnetically drawn. He's, he's, he's in prison, but oh, what he'd give to be in the fellowship of these Gentile siblings in Christ. 
He yearns for them with the affection of Christ. Now notice this. It begins, the affection of Christ begins as an affection that is outside of us. It is outside of us in the historical life of Jesus himself. When the last great Reformed theologian in Geneva after Calvin, a man named Benedict Pictet, he lived at the end of the 1600s, early 1700s, and after him Geneva abandoned the Reformed faith altogether. But when he wrote uh, a massive 1,500-page book on the Christian life that got translated in all kinds of languages and, and it was appreciated for about a century, do you know he gave 140 pages to the life of the emotions in the Christians. Some of you are saying, I didn't know Reformed people talk about the emotions. Benedict Pictet did. And in these 140 pages on the life of the emotions in the Christian life, he begins by drawing attention to and recounting the life of Christ and the emotions that we see in the life of Jesus. In John 11, Jesus comes to Mary and Martha, their brother, Jesus' friend, Lazarus, has died. And as you may know from the story, when, when Jesus comes into their midst of this grieving community of people he loved, grieving the loss of someone he has loved, we read twice in John 11 that he was deeply moved, even though he knew he was going to raise him from the dead. Moved to tears, he wept. Days later, when he enters Jerusalem, he, he drives out the money changers, that which is present, making it absent, money changers in the house of God to be a prayer, house of prayer for all nations. And whatever righteous anger was at work in that moment, if you had seen it and seen it rightly, you would not have thought Jesus was coming unhinged. You would have said that was just the right emotion of that man in that moment. In John 13, the upper room, he says to his disciples, I love, I've loved you. Love one another as I have loved you. In John 21, he's going to ask Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? In Matthew 9, when the crowds of people come to Jesus uh, to be healed and to be taught, we read in verse 36 that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And the verb there for he had compassion on them, it's one of my favorite Greek verbs. It's the verb splognizomai. Splognizomai. Try to say it one time. Splognizomai. All right, it, you can't say it without pulling it from your gut. And that's because the, the verb literally means to be moved, to feel from within your gut, from within your bowels, splognizomai. And so when Jesus looks out on the crowds as sheep without a shepherd, he, he feels this deep gut level compassion for them. And it's reported to us in the Gospels because it's a part of him. He's a complete man. He's fully human as we are. Mind, will, and heart. He's not emotionless, nor is he at the mercy of his emotions. He was the good master of his emotions. And as Benedict Pictet, that great Reformed theologian, wants us to think about our emotions, he has us begin with the emotions that were outside of us in the life of Jesus Christ. But the affection that begins outside of us doesn't stay there, it comes inside. It's an outside-in affection, and it comes inside through union with Christ. So Paul says, not just, I want to let you know that Jesus yearns for you with the affection of Christ. No, he says, I yearn for you 
with the affection of Christ. And do you know what word is there for the affection of Christ? It's the noun form of that, ber- that verb, splognois, from splognizomai. And if you have the King James open in front of you, you might see that the King James translated as, I yearn for you, I long for you, in the bowels of Christ. From the innermost depths of His affections and compassion and mercy and care, that has come into me. And now there's this outside, inside affection of Christ in my heart for you. So often we think just that Jesus died for us, and if you're a Christian, you're someone for whom Jesus has died. But the grand center of of the Bible's teaching about what it is to be a Christian is that if you are someone for whom Jesus died, then whether you've ever realized this or not, and it's possible to go a lot of your Christian life without really understanding this, I did. If you are someone for whom Jesus died, then you are also someone in whom Jesus lives. Paul says, In Galatians 2.21, I am crucified in Christ. I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Years ago when I was uh, 19, 20 years old, I was studying abroad in Edinburgh, Scotland for my junior year. And I I started to get kind of pulled into a cult. Never a good thing when you're far from home. It was a a Christian cult called the International uh, Church of Christ. And, And they were doing a good job of street evangelism, but their main message to me was, most Christians are not real Christians. If you want to be a real Christian, you need to do these five things. And we can kind of point to these different imperatives in the Bible, these five different things. And one of them is coming under the authority of one of our disciples who will basically take total control of your life. Now, the good news is I, I happened to have met a, a very mature uh, Christian, a, a professor of theology who was on sabbatical that year. I was in Edinburgh. I went and I talked to him about it. I told him what these people were saying. And he said, they do not understand Galatians 2.21. That to be a believer is to say with Paul, I am crucified with Christ. I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. This is such wonderful news, this, this teaching of union with Christ, because here's what it means for you if you're, if you're a believer and you find the Christian life sometimes hard. It means that God has not saved you by Christ's life and death so that you're going to go to heaven. And then, and then set in front of you Jesus and said, now you, keep your eyes on him and do your best to act as he acts. Do what he does. Think what he thinks. Say what he says. Just watch him. And whatever strength you can muster, that's all you've got. Now follow him with what's in you. If you've tried to live like that, you know that it's an experience of perpetual failure layered on top with the sense that you're perpetually disappointing God. And the good news is that that's not how God has arranged things for us in this life. If Christ is in us, then it means that God doesn't deal with us like that. He doesn't set Christ before us and say, try and be like him. No, he puts Christ within us and says, receive him to let him live in you that life you could not live on your own. It's an outside, inside experience of life. And and think about how this makes sense with the Old Testament. When God created Adam and Eve, how are they to live? Well, he had the tree of life there in the garden. 
something outside of them that they had access to. And as they partook of the tree of life, they would have something of this true, both, both enduring and, and spiritual life and communion with God. When God had promised to his people in the wilderness, the, the Israelites out of Egypt, about this land with all these blessings that he had stored up for them, he describes it again and again. I'm going to bring you to a land with wells you didn't dig and vineyards you didn't plant and houses you didn't build. How are they going to experience that blessing? They've got to go into the land. And they're brought in. In both cases, there's this experience of something outside of you coming into you, something outside of you, you going into it. And it's an image of how we live in Christ. We get Christ in us, we get into Christ. This outside-inside life. So the good news for you, believer, is that God does not expect you to live in you. (laughs) The life that only Christ can live in you. He's given Christ to live that life in you. One of the German writers puts it this way, that Paul does not live in Paul, the life that Christ lives in Paul. And so Paul does not yearn with the bowels of Paul, but with the bowels of Christ. It's an outside-inside life that leads to an outside-inside affection of Christ in the heart of the Christian. As we're not emotionless stoics, or emotionally enslaved expressivists, but complete men and women, like Christ, with mind and heart connected as his mind and heart are connected in us. So we see that the the far-reaching affection of Christ in the Christian, we see that the outside-inside affection of Christ in the Christian, and we finish in verses 9 to 11 with the prayer-transforming affection of Christ in the Christian. And we'll give these verses far less time than they deserve, but hopefully enough for you to see the connection. I'm going to issue you a couple challenges on the back end of them. In 9-11, we have Paul's prayer for the Philippians. And in our prayers for people, our, our deepest desires for them are revealed. And as Paul is being filled with the affections of Christ, what does he pray for the Philippians? He prays that their love would abound more and more. A love for each other that makes their life together a little foretaste of heaven. It's a love that's more than a feeling. He says it's a love that includes knowledge and discernment. Now, this word knowledge means, it's a word that means an intimate knowledge of Christ. It's the same word that's in Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3.19. When he prays that the Ephesians may, quote, know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. A deep, rich, abiding communion with Christ. That's what he desires for them. Paired with discernment. And this word means practical, on the ground knowledge of how to live. What one of my mentors likes to call sanctified common sense. Paul wants them to have this lofty knowledge and communion with Christ paired with sanctified common sense for life on the ground. That you may approve what is excellent. And and the meaning there, the NIV, NIV captures it well, is that you may be able to know what is most important. What is truly vital. 
With your short life and a myriad of options of how to spend your time and energy, how can you not waste it? I want you to know and approve and pursue what really matters. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, he continues, that, that they'd live with the true finish line in mind, the return of Christ. They'd run the race with the finish line always set before their eyes. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from Christ, his ultimate desire for them is that they might have what we frequently call Christ-like character. Maybe we've prayed that for friends and children and ourselves, that we might have Christ-like character. But it's not just Christ-like character. It's a fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ. It's a Christ-dependent character. It's a, a character that's growing in the soil of union with Christ. And lastly, to the glory and praise of God. So that as they grow in love, a love with an intimate knowledge of Christ, paired with a sanctified common sense, discerning what, what really matters, keeping their eyes on the finish line, growing in Christ-dependent character, all of this would be done in such a way that if your prayer is answered, is answered in this way, the Heavenly Father is pleased and praised. Now, most of my prayers, even for the people that I love, are not that selfless. I pray a lot for my kids. And when I pray for the things they're struggling with, can I be honest? I'd like for them to get this worked out so that my life would be a little bit easier too. If you've got a relationship with some tension in your life, how often do you pray just that what would happen in their life would be the thing that results in the, in the loss of that tension? When we pray from our own hearts with our own affections, we inevitably play with a tinge of selfishness that informs what we pray for and what we don't. And the remarkable thing about this prayer in verses 9 to 11 that Paul prays out of the affection of Christ is how utterly selfless it is. It is focused on the ultimate good. His prayer is transformed so that it is seeking the ultimate good of the Philippians for whom he is praying. So it is a far-reaching affection of Christ in the Christian. It is an outside-inside affection of Christ in the Christian. And it's a prayer-transforming affection of Christ in the Christian. And on that last point, I want to leave us with a couple of challenges. The first is this. On Friday, a couple days ago, I had, it was really a privilege, but a couple friends of mine that I've known well, uh, they're both businessmen, and they had begun discussions about one selling his company to the other. And in the midst of those discussions, things just got into the weeds, and things got sideways, and their relationship was now in a, an afraid place. And, and they asked me if I could come meet with them just to be a mediator as they sought to work, work out some of these issues as, as Christian brothers. And so I'd prayed myself in preparation for that, prayed myself up. I'm in the meeting. I felt like the Lord was really helping us. They ended up hashing it out and hugging it out, and, and the Lord did some wonderful things. So I just served a role of being a, a mediator in, in, in a relationship between two other people. I walk out the door, get in my car, pull up my phone, and I have an email from someone that is, uh, it's curt, is <laughs> rude, and implied in it, not stated, implied is, is, I suspected a criticism of me. And in my mind, I immediately shifted into prosecution mode. 
And I began developing the curt, short, rude response that would imply but not state my issue with them. And I started to write it. But you see, you all have me preaching here today. <laughs> so I've had this passage on my mind all week. And I thought, what happens if I pause and pray Philippians 9 to 11 for this man? So I did. And to my surprise, instead of emailing him what I wanted to email, I called him to ask him what was up. And we had a good conversation. And my challenge to you is in this prayer transforming affection of Christ, not who do you already love that you can pray for this way, but whom right now do you least love? And could you pray this for them? It could be someone you're really mad at. You might be mad at someone here today. You might be mad at someone who's not here. You might be mad at someone in your extended family or in your school or in your workplace. In the quiet moments as we come to the Lord's table, which is all about our relationships with the Lord and with each other, take some time to pray this transformed, selfless prayer of the affection of Christ for others for that person. It could be someone you're filled with an unholy lust for. You're obsessed with the thought of having them. And it feels to you like love, but it's ultimately very self-centered. You want to consume them. You want to satiate your desires. You want them to be for you. Try praying this prayer for them. Try praying this prayer and let your heart experience what the Scottish theologian Thomas Chalmers beautifully called the expulsive power of a new affection. Only a new affection can push out the old. It could be someone, lastly, that you envy. They seem to have it so good. You wish you had their life. And it has established a root of bitterness in you. In the quiet moments of the Lord's Supper, confess your bitterness. And then pray, verses 9 to 11, for them. And let that expulsive power of a new affection, the affection you cannot manufacture, the affection that comes from Christ is an outside, inside affection gifted by the Holy Spirit. Purge you of an unholy envy that's hindering your relationship with them and eating away at you. My friends, God doesn't expect you to live in you the life that only Christ can live in you. Find rest in that today. And then look to Christ to live in you the life He lived in Paul. A life not only of having the mind of Christ so that more and more imperfectly, though in fits and starts, you're thinking as Christ thinks, but a life also of having the affection of Christ so that more and more imperfectly with fits and starts, you begin feeling as Christ feels. And as that happens, expect yourself to feel surprised at how that affection is a far-reaching affection. Expect yourself to feel that it has to be an outside-inside, dependent affection. And let it have its way in being a prayer-transforming affection, not only for those whom you love, but also for those whom you may love least right now. As you come to love them with His love, it will be not only to the glory and praise of God, but dear friends, it will also be to your inexpressible 
joy. Let us pray. Gracious God and Father, we pray now that as we come to the Lord's table, your word, this this word in your scripture, would continue to speak into our hearts through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that we would continue to receive and let your Holy Spirit apply this word in the particular situations and relationships of our lives that are fully known to you. Nothing is hidden from your sight. And that's a good thing, for your sight is the sight of a heavenly Father who not only gave your Son for us to die for our sins, but also gives him in us that he might live within. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.